This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Daniel Erickson is a partner and employment law specialist at Tomkins Wake and he joins me for Toil and Trouble this morning to talk about a recent case of someone beating a post-employment restraint provision. Daniel, what's this case all about? Well, the case involved a Mr Chun and he worked for um, MediaWorks Outdoor Limited as an, as an account manager and that obviously is part of the, the MediaWorks company but it's, a, it's the branch of the company that deals with uh, billboards, electronic, you know, the big electronic screens you see around town with um, with advertising for various companies on it. Um, he he'd left there to go and work for a competing company called Go Media, and uh, he had a restraint of trade in his agreement with MediaWorks, which provided uh, two things, which was a non-competition clause for a period of three months uh, that he wouldn't go and work for a competing business and a non-solicitation clause for a period of six months, uh, which said he wouldn't actively poach clients from, from the MediaWorks company. There's, these are normal things, are they? They are relatively yeah. yeah, relatively common, especially when you're looking at a role like you know an account manager role where you are dealing with pricing, client relationships, etc. Um, so, yeah, MediaWorks obviously weren't happy about this, and so they took the matter to the Employment Relations Authority. Um, uh, pending a substantive hearing, they sought interim injunctions effectively to enforce the uh, provisions in the interim period until the case could be determined substantively, and and they lost. Right. So, on what basis did they lose? Well, when you when you're looking at interim relief in a case like this, there there are really three key factors. The first is uh, the authority will look at is there an arguable case. So is there an arguable case these things are enforceable and is there an arguable case that he's breached them? An arguable case is actually quite a low threshold. It's, it's you know, as it says, it's just an arguable case. You, at this early stage, you don't have to uh, convince the authority that ultimately you will win. It's just that there is a case that has some substance to it that is at least arguable. Um, now, the authority held that the case was arguable, um, because it's such a low threshold, and oftentimes it's not really a factor, you know, and so the, the, the respondent sometimes will concede that the case, look, the case is arguable even if only marginally so. Where the case really was won and lost was the next factor, which is the balance of convenience. So the authority looks at the inconvenience that Mr Chun would have been caused if, the, if he'd had to stand down effectively for this period of time versus the inconvenience to uh, MediaWorks if he was able to take up the role and but, act in competition. Right, but could, I mean, couldn't anyone argue that? In a, well, yeah, the, and as I said, this is where cases are won and lost. And one of the factors that was key here is that, yes, MediaWorks had crossed the arguable case threshold, but in the balance of convenience, what the authority looked at was, well, what's the actual strength of the case? So you've ticked the first box, but you... In terms of that second box, you need to show that your case is, you know, relatively strong, and and, and this is largely where they fell down. So they lost rather than he won. That's right, because the the onus is on the 
the the party that's trying to enforce the restraint of trade, they have the onus of proving that it's reasonable and enforceable, not the other way around. So, you know, Mr Chun doesn't have to show it's unreasonable or un, unenforceable, although that's typically what you would argue yeah. um, because you are trying to refute it, but the onus does fall on the other side. So, in a nutshell, um, what was the, the argument that won the case? I mean, well, the authority basically said in, that in many respects the evidence that MediaWorks had put forward was inadequate. They hadn't established that there was confidential information right. that needed protection. Now, when you're trying to enforce a restraint of trade, you can't just say we have confidential information that needs to be protected because there is another clause that deals with this, the standard confidentiality obligations. To enforce a restraint of trade, it has to be information that is particularly confidential. So it is more sensitive. You know, it's almost in the nature of a, of a trade secret. Right. Um, the other thing where they fell down was in terms of proving the proprietary interest. So to enforce a restraint of trade, you need to have a proprietary interest such as a confidential information or the other one is client relationships. Right. I mean, he was an account manager. Um, usually that would be someone who is, has developed a relationship yeah. and does have confidential information. Yeah, ab- absolutely. But it's always fact-specific. So what they looked at here was the nature of the industry. And so the the clients, the customers, were advertising agencies that would engage with MediaWorks to uh, have their products, you know, have their clients' products advertised on these sites. And the authority noted that it was quite transitory in terms of these were often quite project-based assignments in terms of having things shown. But also there was a relatively high turnover of staff within the advertising agencies. So there wasn't really any evidence to show that there were significant long-standing relationships that Mr Chun had that would be impacted if... If, um, if he moved on and was allowed to compete. Weighing against that was the fact that Mr Chun gave evidence that he and his family, he was the sole income earner right. and that he had, a, and he had a young child. And so he would have been heavily inconvenienced had he been unable to work. Right. So it becomes that balancing exercise where the authority will say, who's going to be more harmed one way or another? And that's where... Um, that's where the case really was won or lost. And he had an interesting way of sort of sticking yeah. it to the company as well, didn't he? Yeah, well, he put up a billboard, <laughs> which is probably appropriate for that industry. Yes. And um, either he did or his new employer did, and, and, and just advertising the fact that, that he'd won. Um, yeah. And I, from the media reporting I've seen, it sounds like he put that up across the street from the MediaWorks <laughs> office, which was... Ooh. Interesting. It is yeah. interesting. Now, tell us about how this differs from the case of Tova O'Brien, who's also been enmeshed yeah. in this. Well, the, these cases are always fact-specific. So you, you're comparing two people who are in quite different positions. So in, in Tova O'Brien's case, the restraint of trade was upheld. And the authorities noted in Mr Chan's case that there was actually a very similar, if not identical, restraint of trade provision that was in these two agreements. So it is an interesting contrast. So obviously the authority has decided there's a significant difference between a breakfast radio announcer and and an account manager in terms of that proprietary interest. And so, um, yeah, as I say, they're very fact-specific. And the authority will also look at was it enforceable and reasonable at the time it was signed so yeah. that's, that, that's a key thing as well. It's not so much when time has moved on 
um, and things may be happening at you know the particular time the employee leaves, they look at the circumstances at the time it was signed. And so this is going to be very germane given that MediaWorks big stars and, yeah. and other people are currently in, at loggerheads with the company over being sort of dismissed after the, everything fell apart. Yeah, but, uh, potentially, then. yeah, because mm. I, w- I would imagine that, you know, the people you're talking about, the ones that have just been made redundant, they will have restraints of trade. They uh, yeah. are probably similar to uh, the ones that Tova O'Brien had in her employment agreement. And so, yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting dynamic because... There's an argument that sometimes run is that, look, you've made me redundant Mm. and therefore you say you don't need me. So it's not fair that you stop me from working for somebody else. Now, the the position has traditionally been that the reason for dismissal isn't relevant to enforcing a restraint of trade. Mm. However, it may come into play increasingly, especially in that balance of convenience and, and weighing those things up. Because, I mean, it, it can be a relatively powerful argument to say, if you don't need me, why can't I work for somebody else? Absolutely. Um, certainly from a, from a moral p- point of view. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that, you know, I, I understand, you know, through media coverage that a lot of the MediaWorks people have engaged, you know, legal assistance. And often in these cases, when there are negotiations around a settlement that will come into play. So there will be a release or partial release from restraint of trade obligations that are agreed to as part of an overall settlement package. Just finally, Daniel, um, Day Chan, Tova O'Brien and this re- recent case, yeah. is it fair to characterise this as being MediaWorks stuff-ups all the way along? You know, without being close to it, it's yeah. it's it's difficult to say. And, and you know, it's, it's difficult to get a full picture from reading stories in the in, in the paper and, and you know, and, and even from reading a, a determination, you don't often get the full picture of what's happened. I mean, certainly, you know, in, in terms of media reports that people were called into meetings and consulted and given less than a day to respond. I mean, that's certainly, you know, I wouldn't have thought that's in keeping with the duties of good faith, the requirement to consult and those sorts of things. So is there a pattern? I mean, I I wouldn't really want to comment on that, but, you know, there, there are some things that it sounds like, you know, haven't been handled well. They clearly didn't employ Tomkins Way because they're no. employment law, law no, exactly. team. Thank you very much. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. The non-deductibility of mortgage expenses has changed the equation for many property investors, coming on top of rising interest rates and a raft of other regulatory changes. But property writer Nicole Lewis says there are loopholes in the non-deductibility regime. She joins me now. And Nicole, how much has the non-deductibility change affected property investors, do you think? I think it's affected them substantially. You've got an awful lot of investors that have got between sort of two and four properties that definitely don't want any more because they simply say they can't afford it. In effect, it's a revenue tax and you just can't sustain paying tax on revenue. So do you Mm. think some people will have actually sold out of their investment properties as a result of this? Yes, some have definitely sold out. And what it does too is it sort of affects the long-term vision of New Zealand housing. When private landlords, perhaps in 10 years' time, won't have as many holdings, you start to wonder what's going to happen when we've got a bit of a 
a crisis at the moment for renters. It's only going to get worse as landlords either exit or don't increase their purchases. So look, you're saying there are ways around it, um, you know, mm. such as renting to social housing providers. We know about that right. and, and new builds, of course. But but yes. you've got other suggestions. What's your top tip? Well, there's two other ways around it. But unfortunately, it's only really viable for those that have got substantial money already. So one of the ways around it is what we call use of money. So what, are pe- what, I, what people don't realise is that non-deductibility is only non-deductible if the reason that you have your mortgage is to purchase the rental property. So for example, if you purchased a rental property in cash and then you drew the mortgage down and the purpose of that money was for then investing, not in property but in other things, that becomes deductible. Or if you paid your mortgage off and redrew it for the purposes of investing the money in other vehicles, that becomes deductible. Do you think people know about that? Well, I actually thought a lot of my circle of friends know about it and have, and have done that. And I actually thought that it was common knowledge until I was talking to some of the people in the New Zealand Property Investors of Federation, and I was surprised to realise that they didn't know that. So I think accountants are well aware, but unless you specifically ask that question, it actually isn't common knowledge. And one of the other points you make is about using an offset account. Just to explain that. Correct. So again, again, it's only useful when you've got money. But so say, for example, you've got a $100,000 mortgage, and this is particularly relevant with high interest rates. It was a little bit different when we're at 2 3%. Now we're at 8 So if you've got, say, for example, a $100,000 mortgage and you have $100,000 cash, what you can actually do now, and with most banks, is you can open what they call an offset account. You put your $100,000 cash into that offset account. You don't earn any interest on that money, but you don't pay any interest on that mortgage. Therefore, all of your mortgage payments are purely principal. So that is actually a very good way of getting your mortgage down considerably. There's no deductibility because there's no interest that you're paying. But it's also an exceptionally good channel for parents that want to help children into property rather than giving them the money, using it as an offset, so you effectively get the house and the money. But look, again, as you're saying, this is for people who have got a bit of dough behind them. And you make the distinction between people, mega landlords, who might have all their properties in a company and who therefore can claim deductions versus mum and dad investors who don't. Just give us a bit of commentary on that. To be honest, in in my opinion, I think the system is quite unfair. So I know some mega landlords that own a substantial amount of properties and they have had new law passed to make them Um, you know, not have to pay deductibility. But mum and dad investors, and I know an awful lot of them, that buy on average one investment property and now they've got a double whammy because their interest rates have gone up and they can't deduct their tax. So say they need an extra $1,000 a month to top their mortgage up, where's it going to come from? Because they're on a salary, they're on wages. And in effect, you'd have to go to your your boss and ask for a pay rise of $1,500 so that you can pay your tax and then pay your revenue tax or non-deductibility with your after-tax money. So they're pretty stuck because there's not a loophole or such or a way around it for them. And they're the people that the government should be looking after. 
because they're the people that are trying hard to save for their retirement to not be a burden on the system in years to come and yet they're the ones being penalized so i don't see that being a fair way of treating the people in new zealand who are doing their best to help the country out nicole lewis thanks for joining us thank you very much for having me like what you're hearing join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website nbr.co.nz Joining us now is Kiwi Bank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr. So, Jared, a couple of big data sets out this week. Let's start with the Reserve Bank's financial stability report. Given the the financial system a relatively good pass mark, what do you make of that? Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of uncertainty offshore, uh, particularly with the US banks uh, and, and even you know, Credit Suisse in, in Europe uh, has raised a few red flags. Uh, I think it's important for the central bank to come out and say, hey, you know, our banks don't face uh, those problems, uh, manage their interest rate risk, you know, much better. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a big tick in, in that regards, um, as you would expect. Um, but there are some things that are that are starting to develop in the report that, um, you, you know, justify, you know, a further look. And, and that is the slight, slight uptick uh, in arrears and defaults that, that are coming through. And, you know, if, if our forecasts are correct and we see unemployment lifting, you know, to five, five and a half percent next year, then we are going to see, you know, those, those defaults increase further. So the here and now relatively OK, but it's what happens in the months ahead that's going to be really stark. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Reserve Bank is is engineering a slowdown, uh, actually a, re- a recession. Um, so by definition, you're going to see businesses tightening up and and actually shedding some of their workforce. And we're going to see a lift in, in unemployment into next year. Uh, that means that, you know, those people that are affected, you know, uh, will, will struggle uh, to pay their debts. And, and that's something we'll have to manage. Um, but we're not expecting a, a massive spike and we are, you know, talking about very small numbers. So it, the actual number and the percentage of people defaulting is is very low. In terms of businesses, they've said firms have been able to, for the most part, absorb the interest rate increases up until now. Uh, do you think, in terms of what you're hearing from the business community, that's been the case? Yeah, um, we've certainly had a lot more interest uh, and, and a lot more um, discussions, I think, in the last six months. I think sentiment in New Zealand has turned quite sharply uh, over the last six months. We've gone from businesses, you know, looking to the future and, and wanting to expand and, and, and uh, you know, expand their, their workforce to actually the opposite now. People uh, that I've been talking to, a number of businesses I've been talking to are actually looking to downsize. Um, so that's a big shift. Um, and that's businesses and, and then we've got households uh, who have debt and, and are coming off really low interest rates uh, and onto something much higher. That's coming through now uh, and that's having a, a, a big impact. So we've seen quite a sharp turn in, in household confidence as well. What sort of businesses are looking to downsize? What sectors are they in? 
Um, it's reasonably broad-based, actually, as it was last year when, when a lot of businesses were screaming out for workers. It was quite broad-based. Now now the downturn is, is, is also broad-based. It's it's you know, concentrated in some areas like retailing and, and you know, commercial property and, and, and you know, some areas of construction, uh, as you would expect. But it it, it is it is quite broad based um, and the downturn I, I think we're we're already in it. They've noted the cyclone, done a section on that and said inflation pressures are going to be a lot more uh, intense than they expected back in February. Yeah, so we're basically asking for a construction industry which is running at full full noise. Um, to now actually divert resources and and go into those affected areas and help rebuild, um, it's going to be a big job. Um, there's going to be a you know a surge in, in activity as as we clean up and rebuild, um, and unfortunately that's going to lead to some inflation pressure coming out of the construction industry, uh, and it's an industry which is already generating a lot of inflation. Uh, and we've had materials and, and shortages in, in, in labour uh, in that area. So it's just going to frustrate that um, and, and add to some inflation uh, over the near term. What are the global headwinds? Uh, the global picture uh, is kind of unfolding as we expected. You're seeing quite a sharp slowdown. Um, there's a risk of recession in the United States and, and parts of Europe and a significant slowdown in Asia, that's all coming through. Um, the good news is that the global inflation rate has peaked and the inflation numbers that we're seeing out of the US, uh, parts of Europe and Asia are, are coming in softer. Commodity prices are down and remain down on, on last year. So half of the inflation that we've seen locally in New Zealand has been generated offshore. Uh, that half of the equation looks like it's going to um, you know, come in softer uh, and actually we might see a bit of deflation uh, into next year. The domestically generated inflation, which we touched on before, coming out of construction, coming out of housing, is, is running too hot and, and, and will remain sticky, I think, into next year. For all the flack that the, the banks get for record profits, it's put them in good stead to help. Uh, yeah, so uh, you know we're we're keen on on doing uh, you know lending into sustainable areas. Um, our credit growth has been quite slow or slowed down dramatically, so I think there's a bit more appetite coming, um, and you know. It'll, we will react, I think, to, to where industries uh, come. So, you know, where, where there's demand, I think, will be there. Mm. And in terms of the financial stability report, it says their funding and liquidity positions were quite healthy still. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and that won't change. Uh, you know, mm. that, that is something that all banks take very seriously. Uh, and, you know, there's some pretty good examples over overseas uh, where, where that goes wrong, um, you know, uh, you, you can't afford to let that happen and, and we won't. Uh, on the other side of the coin, unemployment's held quite steady, it remains near historic lows. Yeah, it, it is a lagging indicator. Um, so you can see quite a sharp slowdown in economic activity. Uh, 
you know, businesses cut hours rather than cutting headcount for as long as they can. Uh, the labour market tends to lag what's actually happening in the in the economy by about nine months, uh, or, or, or as long as as long as twelve months. So, um, the slowdown that we're seeing now, we're expecting to to show up in the in the labour force numbers later in the year. And you're still yeah. expecting a unemployment rate above five percent. Yeah, that's our forecast. Um, you know, we are forecasting a mild recession, which is by RBNZ de- uh, design, and and that will, uh, you know, see a lift in, in the unemployment rate into next year. Um, and, yeah, we, we see it going to above 5% in 2024, which is a big move from 3.4% today, but it's nowhere near the concerning levels we saw after the 2008 crisis or, or in the early 90s uh, where we got to double digits. What does all this data tell us about what the Reserve Bank's going to do next, later this month? Uh, it, it, it tells us that they're most likely to deliver on what they've told us they're going to do. They're, they're pretty uh, keen on getting the cash rate up to, to 5%. They believe that's the level it needs to get to in order to ensure that inflation drops back. Uh, we've been quite vocal in saying that, well, actually, uh, I think they've got enough traction to date. Uh, don't really think they needed to go past 5% um, and that they're adding to some downside risk to, to the economy. Um, but, you know, what we say they should do and what they will actually do are, are two different things. And what they'll actually do, I think, is is hike to five and a half and then hopefully pause. Uh, and that will mark the, the, the peak in the cycle, I think, for the cash rate. Uh, and then the discussion will naturally develop over the next few months as to when the Reserve Bank can actually start cutting uh, interest rates. And, and we think that's a discussion for later this year. Jared Kerr, thanks for your time. Right, thanks for having me. After migrating from Sri Lanka in the late 1980s, Asanta Widjiratna became a software-as-a-service pioneer in New Zealand by founding Smart Payroll, which he exited in 2013. It didn't take him long to strike up another success story by launching cloud-based payroll company PaySource, which he still leads as CEO and is now listed on the NZX. Asanta joins me now to talk about his career. Hi, Asanta. Hi, Will. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. It's a great pleasure to be here. So let's go back to the beginning. As I mentioned in the intro, um, you're Sri Lankan-born. Tell me about where you grew up and and, uh, sort of what the situation was back home. I grew up in Colombo. And at that time, my father was one of the pioneering accountants in Sri Lanka. So my destiny was to go into an accounting firm. Mm -hmm. And uh, having done two years of audit and compliance, absolutely detested it. (laughs) So um, I was looking to run away. And and, um, and that's why I ended up in New Zealand. Okay. And about what age did you... I was 22. 22. I was 22. I had $500 in my pocket. Yeah. I'd sold my motorbike, sold my share portfolio, and um, I arrived here. Wow. Uh, my father and grandfather were accountants as well, and um, I didn't quite end up in accounting, <laughs> but I suppose we maybe get there in a, in, a, in a roundabout way, right? So is that where your first jobs that when you came to New Zealand were in accounting? Yes, I spent the first six years, which was essentially my MBA, working for a manufacturing plant out in Tava in Linden. We did flexible packaging. It had bought some of the assets of Trigon Packaging. Uh, it was a fantastic experience, a company that went from about $3 million when I joined them 
to about 20 million over a space of six years. So I learned fast growth there. Uh, but I also learned some of the mistakes that are made in that sort of fast growth process. Uh, and that was, a, that was a baptism of fire for me. Mm. When you say it was virtually your, your MBA, do you mean you were going through an MBA or no, just, no, no. it was just your business education, right? Yeah, I, okay. I, I learned a lot about business there. Yeah. So um, being a green sort of accountant, uh, becoming the financial controller of that group and, and seeing a business go from 30 people in a, a small town in Wellington to, to being a, a global player mm. uh, in the flexible packaging business was, uh, was a hell of a learning experience. So did you go through tertiary education in Sri Lanka? or? Yeah, so when I came to New Zealand, I was qualified. So I, mm-hmm. my qualification is SEMA, which is the UK body. Mm-hmm. Uh, management accounting is, is, the, is, is the branch of it. And so, yeah, I was qualified when I arrived here. Okay. And uh, as you say, you learned a lot through that first job. Um, how did you get the idea to uh, sort of combine that with, with, with software and tech? I was, I was always interested in software and tech. So one of the one of the gifts that my brother gave me, I was about fourteen or fifteen, was an early luggable HP computer, and um, it had no internal memory. It was one of the earliest machines, and I absolutely fell in love with with, a, with software and 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 computers. Um, so that was always part of my DNA. And and if you look back at the history of software, some of the earliest uses of computers and software was in the payroll and accounting area. So things like DecEasy, um, those are all pioneering accounting software that was developed for uh, um, computers really, really early on. Mm. Okay. And so did you make that connection while you were working there? Hey, this can be this can be done better, but could it be done better at that company or you had to sort of step out on your own? Yeah, my, my first auditing experience uh, was doing a manufacturing company. It was a massive barter shoe company uh, and all their systems were, were manual. Mm. There were ledger books and, and there were warehouses of records that we had to go through to find source documents, etc. And I could see how computers could change a lot of that. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And payroll in particular sparked your interest? Yeah, pay- payroll was, was, I started off with a product called Smartbooks, which was a spin-off from a company called Banklink that sold to MYOB some years back for $140, $150 million. Uh, a fantastic New Zealand tech business that essentially revolutionized the way the bank statement data is used in accounting software. So they provided that in a digital format that was consumed by the product that the accountants used. And they had a product that they had for uh, small businesses. And, and so I had the license to that, and, and they had seven customers when I started, went door knocking uh, and started signing up customers to that service. This is like we're talking in the mid-90s. Mm. Pre-internet, um, we used to ship the data in a desk in a courier pack. <laughs> uh, was was DOS based, and and I learned so that my entry into small business was when you look at the statistical data, the demographic data, business demographic data, you will see that consistently the area that outperforms is that SME sector, and, and that's the least supported and least serviced from professional services to anything you talk about. You know that's that's probably the most neglected piece, and, and I felt that if you could match up and deliver value to SMEs there'll be a market for it. Mm. So one of the common um, people say, look, you're mad to be doing this. You know, you, SMEs won't pay is, is a common misconception. SMEs will pay if you can add value. So if they spend a buck and, and they can see that they're getting two or three bucks worth of value for it, they'll pay for that every day of the week. 
And, and that's, again, a lesson I learned uh, very early on. If you can provide confidence, if you can be dependable, if you can provide customer care, then you had a customer for life who would talk about your product to their friends and neighbors. I'm a great believer in the old-fashioned word of mouth, mm. the impact of that, and, 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 and customers being our evangelists is, is something that, that's very dear to my heart. Um, in terms of the sort of broader investment market for, for tech businesses, obviously it's a very difficult time at the moment, um, and uh, PaySource is still on a path to profitability, um, but is, is publicly listed. So wh- what do you see? I mean, I'm going to ask you to crystal ball gaze or you know, give me your impression of um, where tech sector valuations are going, and then particularly for PaySource, what, what, how are you going to um, get to p- profitability? Yeah, look, um, two and a half years ago, we, we could see that the winds were changing and, and we knew that there would come a point in time where people weren't paying 20 times revenue for, for tech businesses and, and, and crazy valuations like that. Um, and, and the era of easy money as, as interest rates start to come back to, to norm uh, would change the investment climate. And, and, and so it has been. Uh, as a board, we decided that we'll focus on getting to self-sufficiency. And, and we've continued on that part. So, so we did, we've done only one public raise of five and a half million that was oversubscribed on a rights issue. And, and we've not gone back to the market since. And, and we are firmly committed to not going back to market to raise money to keep the lights on. If a business is, is continuously going back and saying, I need more money to just run the business, there's something fundamentally wrong there. That doesn't mean that if we have an opportunity that we require capital for, it's a growth opportunity and we need to raise that money that will give us a return over time, that we won't go back to market. We certainly will. Um, so it, it's, it's, it is a very, very important distinction um, in terms of saying raising money for running the business versus raising money to grow the business. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I think there's been a lot of confusion over those two elements over the last eight to ten years mm. where there's been a lot of very very easy money and and you know if you weren't doing that if you weren't being careful being older helps you know that this is this is why entrepreneurs who are in their 50s and 60s who've seen these things before we, we've seen these cycles i've lived through you know 87 through to 2009 i've seen a lot of these things before and, and so i cannot i i i know that things change it's not the same all the time mm. and 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 like people ask me, aren't you afraid of the recessionary climate that we are in now? And again, if you look back historically, through the toughest times, post that, immediately there's a resurgence in the SME sector. So if you look at the best years for zero, it's post GFC. Mm. So that 2009, 2010, 2011 was there was a massive increase in the number of SMEs that were falling. And, and that formed the customer base for that business. Mm. And, and we see exactly the same. There will be tough times, without a doubt. And, and we're seeing that um, across the board. We've, um, the last set of numbers we put out, we've grown 50% in, in the last 12 months. You know, we're incredibly proud of that. And, and, and that has come about because of um, the loyalty of our customers and, and, and the sector that we're in. So, so we've been insulated to a certain extent um, from, from a lot of the external factors. Okay. And, and for yourself personally, uh, if you're thinking about investing in other tech companies, um, you know what's what's on your mind as an investor. 
I like I, I I tend from an investment point of view I I, I like really early stage mm. and, and and looking at really early stage in the end it's about people right so you know you, you can have the best idea and if it's not the right group of people they're not going to get that to market but you know a, 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 a band of very committed people who really believe in idea will not stop until they see the light of day so so I, I tend to invest in people um, rather than an idea so that's that's just me and, and, and how I see that. Uh, and, you know, you don't get it right all the time. You know, I've, had, I've had a few write-offs myself. Um, that's, that's par for the course. So it's, it's essentially what's the enthusiasm, what's the, what's the ability, uh, and how committed are these. Because, you know, doing a startup is bloody hard. Mm. It, it's, you know, people have got this idea that it's, um, it, it's an easy thing. Man, the, the, the sleepless nights of, you know, are we going to make payroll to, you know, how are we going to survive this shock to, you know, every day is, it, it, there is some drama. Mm. And, 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 and if you are unable to sustain yourself through that, like, you know, you, you're going to, you, that, that's why a lot of people give up partway through that journey is that it, it takes an incredible commitment to get through that. Mm. With that in mind, if there's sort of one piece of advice you might give a, a young entrepreneur or someone just starting out on the journey, what, what would it be? Make sure you're fit physically and make sure you've got solid personal relationships mm. because that's where the pressure comes in. The, the, the pressure comes, you know, if you are, uh, you need to be able to, to be able to go through the, the fear and the stress that goes with it and then you lean on the people who are your closest loved ones mm. and, and if they're not on board and you're not getting supported, it's a bloody lonely place. Mm. And, and, and so I always say, like, it, it sounds like a ridiculous thing, but, you know, get fit is, is really important. I'm, I'm training for a marathon. I have never run in my life. Every year I find something scary to do. Last year I learned to play tennis. This year I've decided to run a marathon at the end of the year. Wow. It, it just, it, that, that physical component is really important to, to dilute the stress that you, you go through mm. on, a, on a day-to-day basis. It's a lonely, hard road. Plant-based meats business Greater Goods has caught the eye of a surprising investor, farmers. Kiwi farmers have said to see the opportunity as a way to offset carbon emissions and diversify their financial interests. Here to tell me more is Greater Goods General Manager, Sean Leonard. Welcome, Sean. Morena, Morena from Melbourne. Oh, um, so why don't you we sort of start at the start and you tell me a wee bit about how you came to notice this trend? Um, Greater Goods is actually in the process of doing a capital raise with Equitise. Um, so at this stage, um, it's been private, available to VIPs to on an expression of interest basis. Um, and what we'd started to notice was the amount of farmers that were reaching out to us um, and showing interest in the in the investment raise and. Um, I mean, I've worked in dairy previously um, for several of the major dairy players. So I guess in many ways it, it didn't really come as a surprise to me, but it probably would come as a surprise to to others um, that there is some interest in, in farmers wanting to invest in alternative proteins. And um, you mentioned your capital raise there. Can you give me a sense of how much investment in your capital raise is coming from the farming sector? Um, well, we can't say precisely yet. So at the moment, we're at the expression of interest stage. So the farmers that we have spoken to um, want to know a little bit more about our business, want to know a little bit more about what the plans, what the growth is. 
Um, I can say um, the interest in the farmers has been quite diverse. So we've spoken to a couple in the Waikato, a couple in, in Canterbury, um, different types of farming backgrounds. Um, but at this stage, we um, haven't can't really disclose much more than that. Yeah, I'm really interested in what sort of what type of farmers are getting involved in this. Is it livestock? Is it arable? Like plant growing? Um, both, actually. So um, one livestock, one one dairy, and as I mentioned, I've worked in the dairy industry before, and I think. Um, there's a couple of misconceptions, I think, that the public have about farmers, and particularly when we're talking about the carbon emissions um, tax, and it kind of feels like, you know, it's it, it's an important uh, step that we need to make as a country, obviously, but um, I think farmers often sort of cop a bad flack that they don't care about the environment and they're out there just emitting carbon willy-nilly, but in actual fact, um, most farmers care deeply about the environment, um, and they do see an opportunity. I guess the conversations that we've had is, well, uh, what does the future of meat demand look like? Um, is there an opportunity for us to potentially have a, a bob each way um, in terms of alternate proteins while still obviously having a business in the traditional protein space? And so why are farmers telling you that they are interested in investing? Well, I think it does have something to do with having a, a bob each way. Um, but there's also uh, the conversations that I've had have been around the carbon emissions tax. And I think what they would like to see, um, many farmers would like to see, is whether or not there is a way to be able to offset those by investing in um, green enterprise or alternative protein innovation. Uh, the government is uh, heavily involved. There are lots of alternative protein projects happening at the moment. And I guess for them, it feels a little more tangible that they are able to, you know, put their money where they know precisely where it's going. And, you know, there's that feel good factor, I think, of, you know, we are doing the right thing and um, and this is what we are doing. And so tell me more about sort of the carbon emissions offsetting. What's the current situation for farmers and how does investing in companies such as your own help? Well, obviously, we've got we've got the carbon emissions tax is being introduced to farmers um, next year and across 2025. But we're not entirely sure what that looks like um, at this stage. And so I guess that's probably where the conversation is happening is, you know, what does that look like and is there a way that um, potentially, you know, they could um, offset rather than, you know, just having to pay a, a large sum of tax without really at this stage being aware of exactly where that money is going and what those um, what those tax initiatives look like. And are you aware of other plant-based businesses also gaining traction with the sector, or are you sort of a first of its kind as well there? No, as far as I know, um, we are, yeah, we're the first. And I'm not sure whether that has something to do with the fact that um, we just decided to talk about it because um, we think the conversation is going to continue to um, become even more topical as we get closer to um, what that carbon, um, carbon emission tax looks like for farmers. Um, but to my knowledge, I, I think we're first, although that said, um, when we look at dairy companies, we are seeing uh, dairy companies global trends around um, launching products made with alternative proteins. Um, and so I think uh, it is happening in corporate, um, but uh, not necessarily as a sector as a whole. And do you think plant-based businesses are contributing to declining meat demand? 
Um, absolutely. So um, what we what we now know is that forty percent of Kiwis and forty percent of Aussies are reducing the amount of meat consumption that they would have um, compared to years ago, and. What it's been is a bit of a, a race for food manufacturers to produce those alternatives. Um, the tricky part, though, is that flexitarians or meat reducers, they still love the taste of meat. So it's about creating alternative proteins that actually deliver on the taste and texture. Um, and a lot of that success has come from businesses like Greater Goods, which is not a food tech business. It is, it's a business created by... Uh, a restaurateur in the vegan space um, who knows about great tasting food. So the way for the alternative meat protein sector to win is to continue to put out um, food that delivers and tastes like a traditional meat product. And once we start to see that, I mean, I'm here at the Food Service uh, Australia Expo, the amount of plant-based proteins and meats on show here at this event is phenomenal. And the taste and texture and delivery of those products is second to none. I mean, we're seeing tuna alternatives, crumbed fish alternatives, chicken nugget alternatives, um, and they taste fantastic. So I think as long as the industry continues to strive and in, in deliver in that format, the meat sector will, you know, will, will struggle. So I think the environmental issue is becoming even more so. And I think for Kiwis as well, um, we've just seen the massive impact of floods. And as I understand it, I think we're kind of waterlogged through Northland and Auckland at the moment. Um, we're starting to actually feel those climate change impacts for ourselves. And it is, you know, making everyday Kiwis kind of question um, the part that they can play in wanting to reclaim our summers. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me. ASX-listed transport management provider Avada Group is on the hunt for local operators to fold into its group. The company has just finalised its deal to acquire South Island-based Wilson's Traffic Management for up to $13.7 million. The deal is the group's first foray into the New Zealand market as it looks to become the dominant player in traffic management on both sides of the Tasman. Avada Group Chief Executive and former Wallaby Dan Crowley joins me in our Auckland studio. Well, thank you for joining us, Dan. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about the Avada Group and sort of the journey towards this point now? Pleasure to be here, Nicholas. Uh, so Avada, we listed, uh, publicly listed on the ASX in Australia in December 2021. So we brought together eight traffic management businesses across the East Coast and uh, with a view of and strategy of being able to be Australia's and New Zealand's uh, largest traffic management provider. So part of that journey is to identify different businesses throughout Australia and New Zealand mm-hmm. and then and bring them into the fold. Well, Wilson's Traffic Management, that's your first acquisition here in New Zealand. Just talk to me a little bit, what was the attraction to this particular company? Well, we have been doing some due diligence both throughout the South and, and the North Island, and Wilson's definitely took our eye in the South Island. They're the largest operator throughout the the, the island. They have a number of depots in, in Nelson and, and Queenstown. Their major operation is throughout uh, Christchurch. Good operation, uh, very passionate team, good culture internally, but mm-hmm. more importantly, and most importantly, a very good safety culture and uh, a team uh, headed by Sam Wilson and, and Gabby, his partner, who are very passionate about the industry and, and definitely passionate about driving it throughout the South. What are your plans for this business now that you've acquired it? 
Oh, definitely to, to make it the most dominant force in the South Island. And, and with Sam's passion, I think that that's very achievable. So that would that would consist of maybe expanding throughout the south, or opening up sort of new offices and things like that. Well, one of the, the key ingredients that Wilsons does have is that they have a fantastic client base in the areas that they do work, and they're the ones that are actually asking Sam and the Wilsons team to be able to expand throughout the South Island where they're not uh, at presently. So it gives them a great opportunity to be able to work with those current clients, get into those different areas, and to be able to start doing work for for the newer clients in those areas. Mm. Avada Group is a company that looks to grow through acquisition uh, and how does this deal sort of open the door to sort of further deals here here in New Zealand? Well Australia and New Zealand are very similar um, but you've got uh, I must admit and I don't say it too often it, around uh, from a New Zealand perspective you've got fantastic you know uh, industrial relations uh, landscape and, and easy to, to navigate and perform so it is a good area for us to be able to work and, and, uh, and to be able to operate. The regulations within the industry are very similar to, uh, mm. to to both countries, so it isn't a, a big or a difficult step for us to be able to navigate over into the, uh, into New Zealand. Would you ever look to bring a business like Wilson's, it's quite a, quite established in the South, look to expand it into the North Island, or would it be to look to acquire a firm that already had a bit of a presence in the North Island? At present, I think we'll, we'll look at and identifying a company or, or companies in the North Island uh, mm-hmm. to, to acquire. We Trying to jump from island to island, even though it, it sounds easy, it, it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the clients that they have in the South Island are quite established and, and they're keen to keep uh, keep using them. So we'll, we'll look around at a number of different companies and we are looking around and there are some some uh, really good uh, businesses that are in the North Island that are running presently. When you're speaking to those companies, what are the conversations like? Are, are these companies that uh, perhaps want to grow but don't have the capital? Are these people who perhaps... You know, these are family-run businesses. Think about succession planning. Maybe think about their own exit strategies from their businesses. Do you just give a bit of a bit of insight into that? Well, the the industry, uh, both in Australia and New Zealand, has grown over the last ten years with regards to regulation and requirements and so on. It's it's been started by mums and dads. You know, mm. so it's it's very much been a cottage industry that has grown significantly. And a number of those uh, of those owners have actually got up there and gone have have looked at it and gone, "What is my exit strategy?" Because mm. they um, principally don't have one and so they've got a, that's where we come along and, and offer them the opportunity to be able to have an exit strategy but also then work with their team to be able to grow their business because it is their legacy mm-hmm. and the and and all the people are very passionate about their business and we don't want to uh, be like our private equity and rip it apart you know mm-hmm. we our whole thing is to, to grow the people and grow the business and be able to put more professionalism across the board into those businesses is it sort of your preference to try and keep management in place then Oh, absolutely. Mm. You know, uh, management and the people are the key. The, mm. t- the, the TCs uh, across the board in both Australia and New Zealand are undervalued. You know, they have a, a significantly important job in keeping the people on the road, the public safe, you know, the, the road workers safe mm. and themselves safe. And as I said, I think they're undervalued. Mm. And so it's really important. We have a lot of people who are very passionate about their work and about what they do. And, uh, and the same from a management perspective, a, a lot of them are very passionate and we want to make sure that we can help them grow and and be able to actually give them the opportunity across the board now. Um, we, we're seeing in our businesses that people are actually transferring from business to business because they want to go from a Victoria to Cairns, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to, to live. And, and uh, we give them the opportunity to move around. 
just give us a sense of how big the industry is here for traffic management and what sort of opportunities do you see for that for your own business? Oh, look, it, it's a very under understated uh, business uh, industry uh, across the board. If you look at uh, from the the due diligence we've done so far, um, and I would suggest I'm very much underrating it and undervaluing it. But you look at the top, you know, five or six companies in New Zealand, then look at the value, uh, the the volume of companies throughout both islands. It's at least a half a billion dollar industry, and mm. and I could be radically off, as mm. in the upside. Mm. And you want to try and take a slice of that market share, I presume? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Do, do you have figures in mind? You know, what is the plan for New Zealand? Is it to be the the dominant player in this industry? And and that's correct. The same as Australia, uh, we're looking to be the number one traffic management provider in the country. And then off mm-hmm. there, uh, off there, as our strategy is, is then looking to ancillary services that hang off that traffic area, whether or not it's in the tech space, whether or not it's in more manual handling uh, areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, there's you know, fantastic opportunities. Mm-hmm. In terms of for your own for your own group. Uh, uh, to, to be such so acquisition focus that can be capital intensive, how do you look to fund these sorts of purchases? Oh, there's three three main ways that we do. So some of it's around around a share, you know uh, around equity uh, mm. within the uh, Avada organisation. Secondly, it's about uh, us cash using cash our own mm. uh, that we generate to be able to, to fund, and then also banks obviously using debt. Mm. We build a great relationship with Kiwi Bank um, so far over here, who mm. are assisting us in in our work, and we look. To, to further that into the future. Mm-hmm. Long term, looking at this industry, what is sort of the long term drivers of growth within it? When you look at, I guess, what are the tailwinds, if there are any, for the sector when you look ahead? Well, to start with, this, the, the growing population with the infrastructure is never stopping. So if you look at, at the industry itself, so you've got maintenance work, which is very much underrated. So it doesn't matter if a person is building a, a, a highway or a driveway, whether or not they're putting up a, a replacement uh, light bulb in, on a street, whether they're fixing up a broken a mains or they you know, they have to have traffic management. And so it is growing with regards to regulation in that area. You look at asphalting uh, across the country, mm-hmm. it lasts around seven to ten years where they have to then re-asphalt. Every time they go out on the road to redo that, they have to use traffic management. Mm-hmm. So, again, people underestimate the the amount of use that traffic management have because a lot of times they're asleep and, and they don't see, you know, 80, you know, 60, 70% of the work being done at night time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, look, wonderful, Dan. It was a pleasure to uh, speak to you. Thank you for coming in. No, my pleasure. Kiwi climate tech startup Virtus Energy is in the midst of a fundraising round as it relocates the company to Europe. And joining me now is one of the co-founders, Santiago de los Reyes. Well, welcome, Santiago. Kia ora, Fiona. How are you? Good, thank you. So let's start with the fundraise. How much are you seeking to raise and and um, how are you finding that process? We are raising 10 million euros. Um, uh, and it's been a long process to understand, especially who are the right investors for us. We are in a very niche market for the VC world, for the VC ecosystem. Uh, we work in the oil and gas and, and biogas and bioenergy sector. So it's, it's a very different uh, approach uh, if you compare with other startups from New Zealand. Uh, and being from New Zealand and not having a bioenergy industry ourselves, it, it made it a little bit more complicated. 
So we have to go out of New Zealand and try to find those investors outside. And we, we had a, we have a lead investor at the moment from the US, uh, who is, uh, very focused on green molecules. So it was very targeted for exactly what we're doing. And um, in terms of the round, when are you hoping to close it? After the term sheet is signed, we have 60 days to close it. Uh, obviously, it will be a rolling close of a month or two months after that, but we expect to, to close it in 60 days. We, we are eager to start working. So uh, my understanding is you raised, uh, your last raised $1.2 million back in 2021 in a pre-seed round. Are your existing investors taking part in this round as well? Yes, all of them uh, are taking uh, minimum the pro rata or more. Okay. And how long is this money expected to last you? What will you do with it? We will try to reach commercialization stage with this. So it, it will last until 25, uh, we think. And we have a commitment from our first customer that they will pay for the first commercial unit. So the milestones that we are racing for are raising the team in New Zealand, uh, growing the team in New Zealand, growing the team in Europe to, to deploy uh, two pilots, one here and one in Europe, and uh, to grow the research and development team. So we can, after the pilot plans, be sure that the first commercial unit will, will work. So maybe um, at this stage, can we just talk through the two to- technologies you've developed? So it's Brio and Boda. Can you kind of talk about what both of those do? Yeah, essentially, essentially we develop a biocatalytic platform. Uh, Danilo, our inventor, studied for more than 12 years, how can we modulate the bacteria activity, how the bacteria react. Uh, and we come up with a product, with, with a hardware that through minor electrical stimulation, we can tell the bacteria how to work harder and faster. So we use the same platform for both products. Um, we are focusing now to, the, to deliver Brio because it's the closest to, to commercialization stage. Bora is a little bit further away. Uh, but Brio is, you can imagine a shipping container we, with our unit inside, and we connect it to anaerobic digesters, which is the big tanks where you put organic waste and you obtain biogas. And we pump the organic waste from the tank through our device and back to the tank. So when, when the bacteria is back into the tank, they are already stimulated and they are growing faster and working harder. So that's, that's the way we do it. Okay. Now you're relocating the company to Austria. Why is that? The market, as I said, we don't have a biogas industry here in New Zealand. In, in Germany, there are 10,000 plants. We have one commercial plant here, EcoGas, uh, which is an amazing flagship for the industry, but it's still starting. So we we agree with the team and with the investors that Austria will be the right place because it's in the middle of the uh, bigger concentration of biogas plants. Germany, Switzerland, France, Northern Italy, Czech Republic, and Austria, they have probably 14,000, 15,000 plants, uh, commercial sites working at the moment. So we wanted to avoid logistics so we can reduce our footprint, um, our carbon footprint, and also surround ourselves with the skill sets and the knowledge of the technology. If we, if we go everywhere in the world where they have anaerobic digesters, the technology coming from the Dach region. So we wanted to m- make sure that we are taking the right skill sets into our company and into our development. So will you maintain any sort of presence in New Zealand? 
Oh, yes, for sure. We, what we did is we decoupled the scale-up from the science. So the scale-up needs to happen in Europe because we are closer to the market, but the science, we remain a, a, a good uh, amount of science here in New Zealand, and we're going to do satellite projects in other countries as well. Uh, but here we have a, a, a project, for example, that is going to run uh, the whole 23, that is very important for our commercial unit. So if, if this project uh, goes wrong in New Zealand, uh, we, we're going to have to uh, assess uh, how we how we redo the program of of the first plant. So we we are investing a lot in New Zealand in R and D New Zealand. So do you actually have sort of um, contracts signed with with partners at this stage? We have uh, letters of intent and MOUs with several of them. Uh, after the first pilot plant in Europe, which is uh, set to be deployed in September. We can assess the unit economics of the first commercial unit, and that's when we can present uh, to our first customer the, the numbers of how much it's going to cost the first commercial unit. But they are set to to sign it off. Uh, what's the time frame around those? Um, you know, getting those numbers through. September is the, is the time that we can we have to deploy the the first pilot plant in Europe. Uh, the, the good thing of being in Europe is that there are pilot plants already deployed there that we can rent and use for our trial. So we are doing that. And uh, as soon as that is deployed, we can assess the unit economics. Okay. You've always had global ambitions from day one. Are you still confident that you can uh, create a Kiwi unicorn? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, we, are, we are 100% confident. We, we, are, we are not a regional company we, we need to we we are a company that is pursuing a purpose our purpose is to deliver energy justice and energy justice is not in one country uh, it's needed everywhere in the world and to do that we need to make sure that our technology works well and our plan and our go to market and our commercialization go well so that's why we're moving into the region that market is but our purpose is worldwide and multi-planetary. Why not? So are all the co-founders moving to Austria or some staying? Or how's it, how's it, how are you going to divvy that up? Uh, we, we are... Benjamin, our, one of our co-founders, is, is in London. He's uh, going to be based in London for, for the beginning to start the UK operations. When we went to Europe last year, we realised that, yes, the market is in the dark region, but the UK market is very pushy and they are trying to do things and get things done. So we want to use that in our favor. Uh, I'm going to be based in Vienna. Danilo is going to be based in Vienna. And Freddie is going to be based in, in both places, in New Zealand and Vienna. Okay. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time, Santiago. No problem. Thank you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.